Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be part two of a two-part episode about the aquatic humanoid. Now, last time we really focused on the mythology and cultural beliefs about our aquatic counterparts, the, the humanoid types who live in the depths. And there, this is a, a trope all throughout fiction. You find it in, uh, in all kinds of human cultures. But one thing I think we didn't discuss last time, or if we did, it's uh, my memory is not serving me well, is the movie Leviathan. Oh, yes. One of the one of the several 1989 underwater peril movies that uh, that, that we keep chatting about. And uh, at least in a previous episode, I'm not sure if we we talked about it in the aquatic humanoids part one or not. We've talked about it so much recently. Yeah. I can't even recall when it happened. But anyway, yeah. So 1989, you had James Cameron's The Abyss, but you also had Deep Star Six, Leviathan, Lords of the Deep. It, it, for some reason, Everybody went nuts making underwater sci-fi movies. Yeah, I mean, we've been tr- sort of trying to piece together uh, in a casual way why that was. You know what what was happening in the world? Was it uh, did it have to do with uh, with recent underwater exploration that really inspired everybody at the same time, or did everyone just know that the abyss was coming and it made sense for all the the various cinematic lampreys to uh, converge upon it? Now, Leviathan is a I think you'll back me up here. A terrible movie, but a great terrible movie. <laughs> it is a uh, it is a thoroughly enjoyable, f- flawed film. It's the ki- this is the type of bad movie that I I just really eat up. That ends up in, I think inspiring me more than good underwater movies. Yeah, uh, it's such an alien ripoff that the, the mm-hmm. DVD I had of it uh, it actually says "Alien Underwater." That's the pull <laughs> quote. Yeah, it it is highly derivative, but it. God, the, the cast is so good, and the the look of the film, like it has a Stan Winston Studios monster in it, mm-hmm. so you know that's going to look like a million bucks. And the 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 overall sets that are used, especially the interior sets for this underwater station, are tremendous. Like the the set does as much as the cast uh, does, really, to create uh, a sense of backstory for these characters. You know, in a way, the sleaziness of Daniel Stern's <laughs> performance in the movie is kind of a set in its own. It's it like is. a landscape of sleaze and obnoxiousness. Yeah, he plays this uh, sleazy character named uh, Six Pack, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to think back on the film and think that there are moments where the character reaches peak sleaziness, but he really just achieves a high plateau of sleaziness throughout his time in the film. Okay, let's not dwell on Leviathan too much, (laughs) but it does relate to what we're going to talk about today. So today we wanted to address some of the biological ideas about aquatic humanoids. And so one of the things in Leviathan is you – spoiler alert for this 1989 B-movie – you find out that the Russians in the movie are trying to create an aquatic humanoid through genetic alteration. Right. And, of course, that ends up creating a monster. A monster, I should add, that is in many ways kind of an ichthyocentaur, which ah, we discussed yeah, in the sorta. first episode. This sort of hybrid of different parts creating this this kind of large uh, centaur-esque uh, chimera. So, yeah, you've got this giant monster that's basically got a catfish head Mm -hmm. and then it's got Daniel Stern's face sticking out of its back and some other random tentacles and lampreys poking off of it. But this was, in the context of the film, an attempt to create Homo aquaticus, the human version of an underwater creature or maybe the underwater version of the human. 
Today we want to look at could such a creature exist and what would it look like biologically and what if aquatic humanoids could exist in reality, how would they figure into our uh, our picture of human evolution? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating question. And of course, the you know the, the easy answer is, of course, yes, all life came from the sea, and we have plenty of cases of terrestrial life returning to the sea. So we're not talking about just complete wackadoodle ideas about uh, about life uh, emerging from one or descending into the other. Right. You are correct to point out that uh, that leaving the water for terrestrial existence can happen and then leaving terrestria. Is that the noun, I guess? Leaving the land for a watery existence can also happen. These are totally biologically plausible scenarios and they happen all the time. But could it happen with us? And in fact, has it already happened with us? So I guess it's time to venture into something that people have asked us to discuss on the show before. Uh, we, we've never done it before, but it is a, a fringe hypothesis in human evolution called the aquatic ape hypothesis. Yes. And, and of course that instantly summons images of a gorilla mermaid. Uh, <laughs> I will not, I will not try to convince you to dismiss that, uh, that apparition from your mind, but, uh, but it, it is almost impossible not to think of that. So you, now you're saying like fishtail with gorilla top? Oh, yes. Not like, like, not like, uh, mermaid top with gorilla legs. No, no, no. Fish, fish on the bottom, uh, silverback gorilla on the top. That's the only way to put it together. Marilla. Yeah. Not exactly, but close. Now, before we get into the specifics of the hypothesis, I just want to start by cautioning that this is not a hypothesis that is widely accepted by scientists or biologists. It's generally frowned upon by uh, paleoanthropologists and other people who study the history of human evolution. Uh, but I think it's worth addressing, especially since people have asked about it before, and it, it fits into this model of the aquatic humanoid and creates at least a plausible sounding scenario in which there could have been an aquatic humanoid. Yeah, if we entered into it as a as an alternate uh, hypothesis, if we enter into it as a thought experiment and we do not enter into it trying to uh, make an argument for the existence of tritons or uh, or mer people or some sort of underwater race, then I think we're in uh, safe waters. Okay, so it starts with a simple observation. Our closest relatives in the animal kingdom are the other great apes, also known as hominids or the family hominidae. This includes orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos. And genetically, we are extremely similar to these animals, especially to chimpanzees and bonobos. Anatomically, we're also extremely similar to them. If you look at all of our body parts and the way they fit together, we're, we're very, very close to these animals. But there are a few key differences. And some of the most major of these key differences are that we are mostly hairless bipeds. We're naked, smooth-skinned, and we walk on two legs. And meanwhile, all these other animals are hairy quadrupeds. They're covered from head to toe in, in hair or fur and usually walk on four legs. So why that difference? What happened in the history of only the human branch of this family to drive our ancestors to become relatively smooth and bipedal while the rest of our closest cousins didn't? 
Now, just to note, I've often seen this framed in terms of questions like, quote, how did we get from chimpanzees to humans? That question is obviously nonsense because we didn't get from chimpanzees to humans. Both chimpanzees and humans came from something that lived more than four million years ago. Chimpanzees are our cousins, not our ancestors. But the question is, why do humans look different from them and from every other hominid, given that we're such close cousins? Well, in March 1960, a British marine biologist named Alistair Hardy published an article in New Scientist arguing for a pretty startling answer to this. Hardy said, in the distant past, our ancestors distinguished themselves from the other great apes, uh, or the other great ape ancestors, by becoming an aquatic organism. So the idea here is our ancestors adapted to life in the water for a while and then return to land. Exactly. And that that shaped the differences between humans today and the other great apes. And so in this article, Hardy summarized his hypothesis about how, quote, man's immediate ancestors diverged from, quote, more ape-like forms as follows. My thesis is that a branch of this primitive ape stock was forced by competition from life in the trees to feed on the seashores and to hunt for food, shellfish, sea urchins, etc., in the shallow waters off the coast. I suppose that they were forced into the water just as we have seen happen in so many other groups of terrestrial animals. I am imagining this happening in the warmer parts of the world, in the tropical seas where man could stand being in the water for relatively long periods, that is, several hours at a stretch. I imagine him waiting, at first perhaps still crouching, almost on all fours, groping about in the water, digging for shellfish, but becoming gradually more adept at swimming. Then, in time, I see him becoming more and more of an aquatic animal going farther out from the shore. I see him diving for shellfish, prizing out worms, burrowing crabs and bivalves from the sands at the bottom of shallow seas, and breaking open sea urchins, and then, with increasing skill, capturing fish with his hands. And, of course, this matches up with what we know about human cultures that uh, um, have a, a legacy uh, of existing close to the sea and upon the sea. Yeah. Now, this is describing what we might call a semi-aquatic existence rather than a fully aquatic existence, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that we became whales and lived entirely in the water, but that the hypothesis is that we sort of became like Homo beachicus, yeah. uh, that we lived adjacent to the water and spent a whole lot of time in it. Homo beach bumicus, maybe. <laughs> Homo bewachicus. I like it. Now, this might sound crazy, and as we said, it is certainly not accepted by mainstream biologists or paleoanthropologists. But I want to say that there's nothing in principle wrong with the idea of a land-dwelling mammal evolving to become an aquatic creature. We mentioned this earlier, but just to reiterate, like, where do you think whales and dolphins came from? More than 50 million years ago, the ancestors of whales and dolphins were four-legged land-dwelling mammals that went through many stages of evolution deeper and deeper into the water. They started as these creatures that lived adjacent to the water and spent more and more time in the water over the generations, becoming more and more adapted to it from the semi-aquatic wading lifestyle of Pachycetus and uh, Indohyus to like this more otter-like existence of this creature called Ambulocetus. And then eventually to creatures like the Dorodon, which start to look sort of like modern whales with eyes on the side and the breathing hole dorsally migrated up toward the top of the head. 
And there's a similar story with pinnipeds, like seals and sea lions. They're believed to have evolved from land-dwelling quadrupeds that were something more like bears or uh, mustaloids, meaning things like skunks, raccoons, or weasels. So evolution of land-dwelling mammals into water-dwelling mammals is not only possible, it has happened lots of times. This is something that's totally biologically plausible. The plausibility of that scenario is not something that's necessarily a problem with the aquatic ape hypothesis. The problems come in later. Because what's the real question? Did it specifically happen to our ancestors? Right, because if it if it did happen, we should be able to find some evidence of it. Right. Uh, so as we said, this this hypothesis is not popular with scientists and experts in the field, but it has really continued to capture the interest of the public since it was first introduced. So it was first proposed by, uh, as we said, the British marine biologist Alistair Hardy in 1960, but it was really most popularized by a Welsh author named Elaine Morgan in the 1970s and 80s, uh, primarily through she she wrote about it in a book called The Descent of Woman, but then also in a book called The Aquatic Ape. And so Morgan's argument for the aquatic ape hypothesis is interesting. And she she summarized it in a TED talk in 2009 before she passed away in 2013. And so I think maybe we should look at some of the specifics of her argument uh, so then we can we can think about them and, and see how they stack up. All right. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive in to the aquatic ape theory some more. All right, we're back. All right, so Morgan's talk has a lot of framing material in it where she sort of lays the context for her argument by talking about the idea of paradigm shifts in science and about how scientific consensus has often been wrong in the past. That's absolutely true. Scientific consensus has very often been disproved. Um, but one of the things I think we should be cautious about is when you start to hear somebody using that fact as an mm-hmm. argument for their argument – yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it's, often the opening argument of somebody who's about to lay some um, some some really fringe uh, uh, theory on you. Right. So it is true that scientific consensus has often been wrong, but the fact that it has often been wrong is not evidence that your particular bucking of it is correct now. Right. So uh, what is the evidence that Morgan presents for her hypothesis? Well, so first of all, she looks at the the really obvious thing. Where's all the hair? Right. The naked right. skin. When you look for other mammals without body hair like us, they're almost all, she says, water-dwelling creatures, the dugong, the walrus, dolphins, whales, the hippopotamus, the manatee. Yeah, the only other example that comes to mind is, of course, the naked mole rat, mm-hmm. um, which is also kind of a special case uh, given that it's a subterranean uh, rodent that lives uh, with a with a hive-like structure. Yeah, she mentions it, actually. Uh, and then she says, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the elephant? That's uh-huh. a land-dwelling mammal without much body hair. Well, Morgan says it turns out that uh, more recent studies have found that the elephant had an aquatic ancestor. Uh, I looked this up to make sure. She's, she's sort of correct about this. The elephants are related to an ancient uh, mammal called the Morotherium, which apparently was semi-aquatic, lived in around swamps and rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not necessarily a direct ancestor of the elephant. But a very close ancient relative of elephants. Uh, She says there's a strong correlation between nakedness and water. There are some hairy or furry mammals that do live in the water, right? You can think of a few. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the otters, beavers, if you want to make a stretch, you can even look at uh, things like uh, like the polar bear, which does is not an, an aquatic mammal per se, but does spend a lot of time in the water and is a, an adept swimmer. Yeah. But there she says there are almost no hairless or smooth mammals that do not either live in the water or have fairly recent ancestors that lived in the water. And she claims that the only exception, as we mentioned, is the naked Somalian mole rat, which she says, quote, never puts its nose above the surface of the ground. (laughs) Then there's the question of bipedality, right? There's no real comparison in nature because we're the only mammal that walks consistently on two legs, according to Morgan. Yeah, other things rear up. Yeah. At times a cat will rear up on two legs and look exceedingly creepy, but, but that's about it. It's four legs the rest of the time. Now, that's mammals, of course. Once you start looking into birds and dinosaurs, of course, you get basically humanoids by this characteristic. <laughs> True, yeah. Uh, but uh, the, some four-legged animals, of course, as we say, can occasionally stand up on two legs. Uh, when do our closest ape relatives walk on two legs? Well, Morgan claims there's only one circumstance when they always walk on two legs, and it's when they're wading through water. You should remember that because I, I want to take issue with that in a bit. Uh, then she, she marshals some more evidence. She says that, uh, how about subcutaneous fat? Morgan says we have a layer of fat running underneath our skin, and other great apes don't have this. Their fat is stored more internally around their kidneys and so forth, and our fat is stored largely in this layer under our skin, similar to other water-dwelling animals, kind of a blubber layer, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an unfair comparison to make here, but we've all seen these images of a hairless gorilla, and they're just completely jacked. You know? Yeah. They're just exceedingly ripped in ways it's that— It's like hilarious muscles, comic yeah. book cover muscles. Yeah, exactly. It, it is a comic book uh, um, physique, uh-huh. uh, the kind of which it, you you rarely see in, in the average human. Here's another one, she says. How about speech? This is a pretty big difference, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, one of the defining— uh, properties of of humans. Yeah. uh, In fact, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who would make the case, including somebody we've had on the show in the past, Franz Duvall, that a lot of the distinctions we try to make that really separate uh, humans and other animals by some hard line of division, the line's a lot blurrier than you might think. But uh, one thing he sort of made allowances for is maybe language, that we that is the closest thing we've got to like a real edge on other animals. And so how come we can talk and other hominids can't? Well, Morgan claims that the difference between a human and a gorilla is not in the speech-producing organs of the throat and the lungs, but in the ability to consciously control the use of breath. Huh. And this is interesting to me because I think I've asked this on the show before, but why are some body processes controlled entirely by the unconscious nervous system while others are conscious and others can be toggled on and off between conscious and unconscious control. Like, you can't consciously toggle on and off your digestion or your heartbeat or your metabolism. But even though most of the time your breathing is unconscious and automatic, you can take it over with your executive control and consciously toggle your breath on and off if you want to. Like, what causes this difference? Yeah, I mean, if memory serves me correctly, uh, thinking back to our John C. Lilly episodes in the past, uh, dolphins uh, have such manual control over their breathing that they can arguably decide to just shut it down and to drown themselves. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, that would be an example that would sort of go with her hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is that uh, the only reason we would be able to evolve this conscious control of our breath is if our past ancestors were shaped by a selection pressure that favored the ability to, like, hold the breath and dive underwater. Uh, She says this would explain a lot. I do think that's a really interesting question of why we can do that. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to go along with her on this being a, an exclusively human and aquatic mammal trait because, I don't know, I've seen videos of dogs diving deep underwater and other mammals doing that. It seems that they have some kind of ability to hold their breath and they're mm-hmm. not semi-aquatic mammals. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, okay, another thing she says. How about hydrodynamics? We are anatomically streamlined. You ever think about why is the human body basically a, a straight line? Why are we sort of dart-shaped where yeah. we can dive smoothly into the water? She says, quote, try to imagine a gorilla diving into water. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I think I've seen it done in a cartoon, but uh, that's about it. Uh-huh. Well, they, it's like a cannonball, right? They yeah. make a big splash. Uh, Morgan says we're halfway between being a chimp and a fish. Hmm. And so Morgan, uh, after marshalling this evidence, she says that she wants to insist the idea is not lunatic fringe. And I'd say I largely agree. I think it's probably wrong, but I don't think it's like the ancient aliens hypothesis or something. <laughs> I think it is a, an extraneous hypothesis that uh, that we don't really need to resort to. And so it's not parsimonious. But I think it's like reasonable to play around with this idea. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. It, it is certainly not uh, ancient aliens, uh, but it, there are some some issues, uh, some some problems, and some gaps that have not been filled in by uh, fossil evidence, for example. Right, but the real question is like, what is the substance of the critique from biology and paleoanthropology? Why would they not accept this hypothesis? Uh, so starting with a few answers, probably the biggest weakness for the hypothesis is, and this might sound kind of silly when we say it, but there's no direct evidence for it. There's no fossil evidence whatsoever that we've ever ha- had any instance of an aquatic humanoid. Right. Show me the remains of the aquatic humanoid uh, and uh, is is the directive and we do not have an answer. Yeah, nothing like that. Now, so this means it's all inference and speculation. It doesn't make it necessarily wrong because we're talking about the ancient past and sometimes when we're trying to figure stuff out about the ancient past, we don't have direct evidence. Sometimes we're just in that situation and all you've got is inference and speculation, so you just try to find the best, most plausible inference and speculation to form your ideas around. But we have to acknowledge that there is no direct evidence for it. And so it's kind of in a weak starting place. Physical evidence would make a huge difference. Now, I came across another criticism of the aquatic ape hypothesis by the paleoanthropologist John Hawks of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he runs a popular paleoanthropology blog, and he, he put a post on his blog about this idea. Uh, some of the points he makes are, are pretty interesting. One of the things is that Hawks claims the aquatic ape hypothesis is not parsimonious. Now, parsimony refers to the idea of the number of assumptions you have to make without evidence in order to entertain a hypothesis. So for a quick example, imagine you leave a sandwich sitting on your desk at work, Mm -hmm. you walk away for a minute, you come back, there is a human bite-shaped chunk of the sandwich missing. Okay. Now, you look around, everybody's just working like normal, no no direct evidence of what happened. So you have to have, make an inference, right? By the way, I am picturing this scenario taking place 
in the movie Leviathan with, with those coworkers. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, did did Daniel Stern take a bite out of your sandwich or what happened? Uh, since there's no unusual behavior, no sign of anything wrong, you've just got to come up with a hypothesis that seems reasonable. Now, you could hypothesize that Daniel Stern or another one of your coworkers took a bite out of the sandwich. Or you could hypothesize that a polar bear snuck into your office <laughs> undetected, and this was a polar bear that had undergone a surgical body modification so that its mouth had an uncharacteristically human-shaped bite, and then it took a bite out of your sandwich with its surgical human mouth, and it didn't like it, and it snuck away without being noticed. All right. Yeah, that that explanation is is much further removed from reality and requires a number of different steps to get there. But like the aquatic ape hypothesis, it's internally consistent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing on the face of it that makes that impossible. It's just it requires a bunch of extra assumptions. Yeah. Well, I mean, like one it's, – it's basically like, like any investigation, right? Yeah. Uh, like if you were investigating an actual sandwich incident in your workplace, it's far more likely that someone in the office did it than someone from a neighboring office who would have a harder time accessing yeah. the location in which the sandwich is stored. Yeah. Then you'd also have to hypothesize them sneaking in and all that. Right. And like the further away you get from the sandwich, from your office – the uh, yeah the, the more of a leap it becomes right so the main reason you'd favor the coworker hypothesis is that you have to make many fewer assumptions without evidence to assume it and so at first glance this kind of thinking can make something like the aquatic ape hypothesis look good actually because hey wait a minute it's just one assumption you have to make in order to explain all this different stuff but the more you examine it the more it becomes clear that the aquatic ape hypothesis actually requires a lot of assumptions of things not in evidence that just sort of get rolled up into one big scenario you're picturing. You can say that all uh, – how about all evolutionary increments and all steps in evolution of all creatures are caused by the ghost of biology, which is a spirit that lives in the sky that decides that a creature should change and then makes little mutations to change it over time. That's just one assumption that explains absolutely everything in biology. But yeah, but it's a big assumption yeah. that, uh, that defies or at least goes beyond the laws of science. It's like saying a ghost took a bite out of the sandwich. Yeah, it's only one step, but it's a step that that goes beyond uh, the scientific understanding of the workplace or uh, the world itself. But then actually Hawks makes another point that I think is a crucial extension of this idea. So it's not just what we've already mentioned about some types of assumptions appearing parsimonious but actually requiring a lot of assumptions even though they only seem to be one scenario. Hawks actually shows a second way that it's not parsimonious and he writes, quote, Certainly it makes sense that hominids would develop new anatomies to adapt to such an alien environment. He's talking about adapting to the water. But once those hominids return to land, forsaking their aquatic homeland, the same features that were adaptive in the water would now be maladaptive on land. What would prevent those hominids from reverting to the features of their land-based ancestors as well as nearly every other medium-sized land mammal? More than simple phylogenetic inertia is required to explain this, since the very reasons that the aquatic ape theory rejects the savanna model would apply to the descendants of the aquatic apes once they move to the savanna. 
This is far from trivial since fossil hominids did inhabit open woodland starting by 8 million years ago and did move to the open savanna by 3 million years ago. Okay, so the idea here is that well, it, you could maybe reasonably make the argument that, all right, the aquatic humanoids move out of the water, but they're still living close enough to the water. They're still going in the water. Uh, you know, they're still a coastal species. You can say, well, maybe they, they retain some of those features. Mm-hmm. But if they're moving further inland, if they're becoming an inland species, a savanna species, then they wouldn't need those adaptations anymore. The, the, the economy of natural selection would drive those away. Yeah. One thing to be clear about here is that a, a very commonly still believed but actually now obsolete hypothesis is the idea that anatomical modernity in human beings evolved on the savanna, that we became basically the animals we are now on the savanna landscape. That used to be believed, and now that's not true anymore. What what generally is believed is that we became basically Homo sapiens in a woodland environment, in some you know, basically a tree oriented existence. Mm-hmm. And then later move to the savanna. Okay. Now, the aquatic ape hypothesis is saying, no, somewhere in there before we got to the savanna, we were in the water. Mm-hmm. If, if that's true, though, we eventually move back to the savanna and these traits that we've still got had to somehow be adaptive to the savanna. So why aren't you just assuming that they're the traits that were adaptive on the savanna? Yeah, this is this is a strong point. Yeah. And so uh, to continue, Hawk says, quote, in other words, the aquatic ape theory explains all of these features, but it explains them all twice. Every one of the features encompassed by the theory still requires a reason for it to be maintained after hominids left the aquatic environment. So it, it feels like it becomes less of an exercise in explaining what we are with this aquatic explanation, and it becomes more about shoehorning the aquatic period into our evolutionary history. Another thing I think we should do is just look a little bit closer at some of those individual planks of the argument that people like Hardy and Morgan brought up, because a lot of them, they sound so sensical, right? They sound very, very truthy at a distance, but they become a lot weaker, I think, once you start looking up close at them. Uh, For example, the idea of hairlessness, right? Morgan talks about this strong link between uh, aquatic existence in mammals and hairlessness. Now, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that we are not hairless. It's true. We do have (laughs) hair, some more than others, but it's there. Yeah, our body hair coverage is not total. It's not nearly at the level of the other great apes, but neither is the body hair. You know, the body hair coverage of other great apes is also not total. Our hair patterns are different, but we do still have a pretty decent amount of natural body hair. Also, the distinction between hairy land-dwelling mammals and smooth aquatic mammals isn't as stark as Morgan suggests. Now, she does, uh, to be fair, acknowledge otters and stuff like that. But there are also so many other hairy and furry semi-aquatic mammals. We mentioned furry beavers, but there's also the furry platypus, the water opossum, which is furry. Allen's swamp monkey, which is native to Central Africa. It's covered in brown, gray, and green fur. Semi-aquatic cats, semi-aquatic herpestids, uh, like the crab-eating mongoose. You've got polar bears mm-hmm. that we mentioned earlier. You've got water-diving bats. So a semi-aquatic lifestyle clearly doesn't always lead to the loss of hair or fur. 
Uh, furthermore, there are other hypotheses that could explain why we have relatively less hair than our closest relatives. So there was an explainer uh, in Scientific American uh, where a researcher named Mark Pagel, the head of the evolutionary biology group at the University of Reading in England and the editor of the Encyclopedia of Evolution, uh, explained some recent thinking. One of the most common ideas about why humans lost a lot of their body hair has to do with thermoregulation. It says we lost a lot of body hair because we needed a better way to keep cool. Now, this could have been a, a pressure introduced by other changes in our ancestors' survival needs. Maybe if we migrated from a cooler climate, like underneath a, a thick tree canopy, to a hotter climate, like an open, sun-exposed woodland or a savanna, we might need to lose the hair. Or if our survival niche became more oriented around intense, prolonged exercise. Ah, such as the pro prolonged uh, chasing of prey animals. Yeah, exactly. Another explanation, this one's pretty interesting to me, parasite resistance. Oh, yeah, because when you think of, of animals with hair, you think of the, the various uh, nasty parasites that can be crawling around in there. I mean, we've talked about uh, the, the extent to which mammalian or especially primate social bonding is based around grooming, mm -hmm. sitting around and picking stuff out of other people's hair. Yeah. And I mean, you think of the constant threat of lice. I mean, I, yeah. my, my child is in an elementary school, so that the threat of the, the head lice explosion uh, is always there. Uh, so by, by losing the body hair, we've kind of what driven the lice to the the head in the pubic region, right? Yeah. I, I mean, they, they should solve that by having just like grooming time where the kids sit around and pick lice out of each other's hair. Ugh, they, they'd probably go for that. Kids are gross. <laughs> So Pagel and a colleague named Walter Bodmer published research in 2003 in uh, Royal Society Biology Letters supporting the hypothesis that we lost our body hair to protect ourselves against parasites. As, as we all know, you know, ticks and lice and biting flies, all, they all make this happy home in thick body hair. They mm -hmm. love it. And these ectoparasites are not only annoying, they can spread disease. Like we don't want our kids to get lice, but – Lots of these kinds of parasites are, are worse than lice. They can give you something that will kill you. Yeah, I, I just re I'll direct our listeners back to our episode on on, on ticks uh, if you want some more information uh, there. But here's something interesting to think about. Once our ancient ancestors could build fires and construct clothing, suddenly they just did not need as much hair to keep warm at night when it got cold. But the hair could still serve as a refuge for these disease-spreading parasites. So once you can build fires and once you can wear other animal skins and stuff as clothing, there would have been a pressure against body hair because body hair is this parasite vulnerability without much comparative benefit to make up for it. If you can keep warm anyway, why have this parasite vulnerability hanging around? Yeah, like when we were talking about aquatic apes supposedly you know, returning to the land – like I instantly thought, well, when I get out of a, a shower, I grab a towel. Mm -hmm. So perhaps, you know, the, the naked ape emerges. It uh, murders a, a hairy animal of some, <laughs> of some form, puts on its fur. Uh, like it's one thing to think of that. But then the, this, the, the use of fire technology mm -hmm. would be a, an even greater step. Yeah. Uh, so Pagel writes, quote, Human lice infections, which are confined to the hairy areas of our bodies, seem to support the parasite hypothesis. 
naked mole rats, animals that can be described as resembling, quote, overcooked sausages with buck teeth, (laughs) also seem to support the theory. They live underground in large colonies in which parasites would be readily transmitted, but the combined warmth of their bodies and the confined underground space probably negate the problem of losing heat to cold air for these animals, allowing them also to become naked. So the same kind of, like, other warmth sources that could have selected for body hair loss in humans could also select for body hair loss in naked mole rats. Okay. And then there's a totally different kind of answer. Sexual selection. Sexual selection occurs when uh, a pressure on uh, some type of trait in the body is selected for not because it provides a survival advantage, but because members of the opposite sex prefer to breed with people possessing that, that trait. And so like the peacock's tail, relatively smooth and hairless skin could have been selected for because it's a way to advertise to mates that you have good health and a lack of parasites. It's a way of showing off that you don't have parasites on you. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but uh, but yeah, you, you have a, a hairless, shirtless uh, hominid walking around it showing showing itself off and saying, look, do you, how many bites do you see? Right. How many how many crawling parasites do you see? None. I'm right. a desirable mate. I'm in good shape. Yeah. Here's a question. I actually don't know the answer to this. Is there a reason I can't think of hairy bodybuilders? Is that like, is there a biological reason that like super muscly dudes don't have hair on their chest or do they shave it off or what? Uh, I, I think generally what's happening is they're, they're having it waxed. Yeah. Oh, so okay. they can better show off the muscles. Okay. I mean, there are plenty of muscular hairy dudes. I mean, you can, you can, I, I you believe can do it. a search on that and, and you will get some answers. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my understanding is that it's a, it's about waxing of the body hair so that you can show off the, the muscle. I'm just thinking about like the movie Pumping Iron. Yeah. Where there's just like, it's just really, really smooth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, those guys are, are waxing and, and shaving, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, anyway, it's not clear to me that there's an obvious winner among the proposed ideas about how we lost our body hair. But uh, any any of these are still viable ideas awaiting the arrival of new supporting evidence. And so I don't see a reason that the aquatic ape hypothesis is like a better alternative that you have to go to. Now, to address another plank of the argument, the uh, the bipedality, like that's also a great ongoing debate. The old theory, of course, was that we had to stand up to see over tall grass on the savanna. That's been debunked now. We you know, we were in a more woodland type environment mm-hmm. when we when we evolved bipedality. But anyway, what made us stand upright in that woodland environment? Charles Darwin thought we might have evolved bipedalism to free up our hands for tool use. This seems unlikely since there's fossil evidence for bipedalism from before we have evidence of ancient tools. But there are other ideas, like perhaps bipedalism emerged from a gathering lifestyle where our ancestors began to walk on two legs so they could use two arms to carry things. Oh, yeah. Uh, This seems possible given observations that chimpanzees tend to walk on two legs and use two arms to carry food items that they consider rare or having great value. Now, going back to Morgan's argument about bipedality, she says, you know, when do our closest ape relatives walk on two legs? She says they always walk on two legs when they're wading through water. And that's the only time they always walk on two legs. 
this is apparently not true because as we've said, like chimpanzees will walk on two legs and use two arms if they're carrying something valuable. Also, I was like, well, let, let's see. I bet there's video of gorillas wading through water on the internet. I looked it up. Uh, nope. I mean, <laughs> there are lots of videos of gorillas wading in the water and most of the time they're doing it on four legs. I mean, there are a few instances where they'd rear up on two legs. Uh, so this doesn't totally disprove the hypothesis, but it really kind of undermines this plank of it. Well, I mean, it makes sense because if you're going into the water, there's a good chance you, you want to use your hands to feel for things. And, and granted, uh, pr- primates don't have exactly the same hand foot, uh, scenario as, as humans, but you're probably going in there. You want to feel the, feel around for the rocks. You want to feel around for something that you're scavenging for, right? Yeah, exactly. And so definitely gorillas will walk on four legs in the water. I've seen it. But I guess we have to come back to this question of like, obviously we can't wholly judge. I mean, it's, it's possible that something like the aquatic ape hypothesis has some grain of truth to it. But, uh, if the biologists and paleoanthropologists are correct that this hypothesis is wrong, it's not not parsimonious, there's no reason to resort to it, why is it so tenacious? Like, we have had lots of people write to us and say, do the aquatic ape theory. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want to hear about it. And it's not that I don't think it's interesting to talk about, but it's it, it's not really taken seriously by experts in the field. So why is it so captivating in the public imagination? Well, I think part of the answer is our entire first episode where we talked about our mythological and fictional obsession with the idea of of humans that live in the water or humans that live beneath the waves. There is a there is a deep cultural attraction to that idea and it kind of bleeds over into aquatic ape theory sometimes. I mean, even even in cases when it's, you know, it's not somebody saying, hey, I think mermaids are real and here's some science to back it up. Right. Uh, yeah, it's one of the, it's kind of a sticky hypothesis. It's mm-hmm. one of those things that, like I said, I, you know, I want to be fair to it. I, I don't think it's like lunatic fringe. I, I don't think it is uh, ancient aliens. Right. But I don't think there's a good reason to resort to it. But it's one of those things that's just so interesting to the mind. It's so fun to picture and so fun to entertain that it sort of like overrides our sense of disinterest in other things that seem, you know, not necessary to believe in. Right. Uh, there's actually a paper from 1997 in the Journal of Human Evolution by John H. Langdon called Umbrella Hypotheses and Parsimony in Human Evolution, a critique of the aquatic ape hypothesis. And Langdon talks about this idea of these umbrella hypotheses, which uh, he says are, quote, aesthetically appealing because they appear to be parsimonious. So they're internally consistent. And by offering this one umbrella hypothesis that explains a range of things. And they appear to explain a whole lot, as we were talking about earlier, without making you without requiring you to assume a whole lot. But they actually are requiring you to assume more than they appear to. And so in trying to explain why these types of ideas stay popular with the public, he says, quote, one reason for this is that simple answers, however wrong, are easier to communicate and are more readily accepted than the more sound but more complex solutions. Evolutionary science must wrestle with this problem both in its own community and in the education of the public. I agree. I mean, we see we see this time and time again. It reminds me of ongoing uh, discussions regarding climate change, yeah. uh, which we've discussed on the, on the show, and just sort of the challenges of science communication in general. Yeah, there, there are so many ideas that just because they're simple to communicate – 
and easy to say and mm-hmm. easy to remember. They've, there's almost like a survival, uh, advantage they have. There's like a selection pressure against things that are hard to explain. Right. And a multiplication, uh, incentive on ideas that are interesting visually to imagine and have sort of like a, the, the, the truthiness feeling, the feeling of explaining a lot and are easy to communicate. And I think the aquatic ape hypothesis falls in that category. Yeah. Like for instance, uh, I, I come back to what, uh, a physicist Brian Green said about uh, climate uh, science mm-hmm. at uh, the most recent World Science Festival in New York. He he talked about how he decided, right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bone up on climate science so that I can talk about it and defend it. Yeah. And he just he gave up on it because it, he, and this is a this is an it's a lifetime of work. It's yeah. a lifetime of work. And this is an accomplished physicist saying, yeah, I, I can't I can't get up to speed on this in the way that would be required for me to go to bat for it against uh, climate change deniers and so forth. Yeah. So but on the same hand, it seems like it would be it would be far easier for Brian Greene, uh, uh, for you and, or I uh, as well to bone up on aquatic ape theory. Yes. You know, if someone said, all right, Joe, you're going on Fox News tomorrow to defend <laughs> aquatic ape theory. Yep. Like, I could do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to, but I could do it. <laughs> yeah. It's gotten its favor, that truthiness gravity. Yeah. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk genetics a little bit. All right, we're back. Hey. Hey. You know, so uh, in the break, I was just thinking about this. Uh, I wonder, I have uh, aquatic humanoids. If this if this were true, would they have an easier time urinating in the water? Uh, Best off my conversation ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you're talking about. Like, uh, you can kind of, when somebody's peeing in the water, you can like, see, you were saying you can see it on their face. Yeah, there's a look. There's a, there's sort of a stillness to the body. Uh, I mean, in my own case, like mm-hmm. if I'm no, not in the pool, but if I'm in the ocean or something, I feel like I, I have a, I have to really go into a certain, um, you know, state of mind to pull it off. And I, and I probably look like I'm peeing in the ocean. Thanks like just, a lot, Robert. Yeah. Polluting the ocean for the rest of us. Well, you know, the, the fish do it. The, the merfolk do it. So, uh, you know, why should I have to walk back to the condo? I know exactly what you're talking about. There's this kind of like, uh, you see people with like the, the kind of the eyes roll up and they kind of tense up and grit their teeth mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. So I wonder if, if this would be something, if this would be in favor of the aquatic ape, like it's something that we lost. That we would have lost upon returning to land, or is it uh, just evidence that we were never uh, some sort of an aquatic hominid species that was totally at ease peeing in the pool? Okay, let's get beyond the aquatic ape hypothesis, which imagines this semi-aquatic uh, period in in human history. As as we've said, we're not convinced by this idea. It, it's not absolutely impossible, but don't think there's a good reason to go there. However, if, if we want to entertain the idea of a totally aquatic humanoid, a humanoid of the deep. What would we be what would we be looking at? What would that entail? Well, I suppose there are basically two ways to look at it, right? Either uh, something humanoid evolves independently of humans in the deep, or a hominid variety splits and evolves into a primarily aquatic species. Okay, so this would be an example of either convergent evolution, where mm-hmm. some kind of aquatic species converges on basically the humanoid form. Right. Or it would be a divergent, basically the same kind of thing we see in the evolution of whales and dolphins. They were land-dwelling mammals, then they became semi-aquatic mammals, and then they became totally aquatic mammals. Right. Now, I think the idea of um, convergent uh, evolution in the deep, uh, I mean, I can't think of anything that that lives 
a, a primarily aquatic lifestyle that looks anything like a human being. Sometimes you get some kind of creepy human behavior convergence with octopi. That's true. I mean, I'm there, sorry I said octopi. Octopuses. Yeah, there there are there are some uh, some cephalopods that have kind of a, a walking technique on on the uh, the bottom of of the sea. There are some fish that quote unquote walk on the bottom of the sea. They move around with their fins, mm-hmm. but that's a far cry from having something that that really has uh, anything like a human body. Right. Like even in just you know very broad strokes. We know we've touched on a number of the different examples though of. Uh, of, of creatures that have gone the other direction, uh, mammals that have returned to the sea. Uh, but I think perhaps the manatee and its kin are our are best examples to look to for, mm-hmm. you know, for what, for what a creature like this would, would be, what, what a, an aquatic humanoid would consist of. Let's hear it. All right. And, and, you know, we call them the Sirenians for a reason. It's <laughs> ironic that these, these are creatures that partially inspired our visions of mermaids. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the manatees here and the dugong. Uh, they're the world's only, uh, marine mammal herbivores and the only her- herbivorous mammals ever to have become totally aquatic. I've never thought about that. The mm-hmm. only marine mammal herbivores, yeah. all, all the others eat uh, eat the flesh. Yeah, they, even if it's very tiny bits of flesh, very tiny creatures, they're still eating creatures. So Sirenians have existed for more than 50 million years, having uh, uh, diverged from the uh, Panugolata clade, uh, the closest living land relatives uh, to the, the Sirenians are the elephants and the hyraxes. Hmm. Now, a this is a pretty interesting. A 2016 study by Maria uh, Chikina and Nathan Clark uh, looked at three major independent evolutionary events in which mammals returned to the sea, and what sort of evolutionary trade-offs took place. Okay. So they used 59 placental mammal genomes to calculate the relative rates of evolution for all branches in. Uh, 18,049 gene trees. They calculated a genome-wide average rate of evolution across all species. Basically, they wanted to see if these uh, oceanic returns entailed an evolutionary acceleration or deceleration. Oh, that's interesting. So they identified three main themes. A burst of adaptation, Mm -hmm. then uh, relaxation, and additional constraint. They identified uh, marine accelerated genes to the tune of about 9%, and they related uh, to these different features. Okay. New functions for genes forming skin and connective tissue, uh-huh. sensory systems, Oh yeah. muscle function, skin and connective tissue, lung function. So an example here would be uh, accelerated adaptation for a gene encoding uh, a lung uh, a surfactant protein that may have been necessary for diving. Oh, okay. And then uh, lipid metabolism. Mm-hmm. But they also identified marine decelerated genes, 11%, more than the, you know, the accelerated. And these related to a general loss of the number of sensory genes for smell and taste. No, no more taste once we yeah. go in the water. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems to be the case that, uh, that aquatic mammals have, uh, have a much, uh, uh, decreased sense of taste. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess once you're a sperm whale and you're like trying to eat giant squid, you just don't want to be tasting that. Well, uh, something like that. Now, other marine decelerated genes included uh, molecular maintenance strategies such as DNA repair, chromosomal maintenance, immune response, and programmed cell death. Hmm. So all of this, they said, meshes with the increased constraint on somatic cell maintenance for such creatures. And I have a, a quote from the paper here. 
Quote, hundreds of genes accelerated their evolutionary rates in all three marine mammal lineages during their transition to aquatic life. These marine accelerated genes are highly enriched for pathways that control recognized functional adaptations in marine mammals, including muscle phys- physiology, lipid metabolism, sensory systems, and skin and connective tissue. The accelerations resulted from both adaptive evolution as seen in skin and lung genes and loss of function as in uh, gustatory and olfactory genes. In regard to sensory systems, this finding provides further evidence that reduced senses of taste and smell are ubiquitous in marine mammals. Hmm. So naturally, this is not a blueprint for evolved aquatic humanoids, but I think it does give us, give us some sort of idea of the genetic changes that might take place over millions of years until we reach the point that we're uh, Kevin Costner from uh, from Waterworld. Oh, boy. Yeah. But, but well, I think how it, do we reach the point that we're Dennis Hopper in Waterworld? Well, uh, all I can say is that uh, Kevin Costner's character would probably not have a good sense of taste based on this research. It's a bummer, man. Yeah. All right. So let's come back to the reverse, though. Something from the deep evolving to life on the surface. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, the story of all terrestrial life dating back to the terrestrial land invasion of the Devonian era. Mm-hmm. But when we try and think of a humanoid creature evolving under the water, it it gets a little sticky. We get into the the creature from the Black Lagoon territory. We get yeah. into uh, Zat or Bloodwaters of Doctor <laughs> Z territory uh-huh. because in these cases, uh, uh, they often will bring up certain fish that can walk on land uh, as examples of of how this might work, or fish that can breathe uh, both uh, above and below the water. And we do have ambulatory fish, walking fish such as the mud skipper. Uh, we have the, the handfish and frogfish, which, quote-unquote, walk on the seafloor with specialized fins. And, of course, there are the, there's the walking catfish of Southeast Asia, which, we should be clear, does not so much as walk as it flops and flips and wriggles around. Uh-huh. And uh, the lungfish, the fish highlighted in the creature movies, right. uh, this uh, creature does boast a lung and gill combo existing as a sort of callback to the 375 million year old evolution of land dwelling creatures from a long extinct species of lobe finned fish. Uh, but it still doesn't give us quite the recipe for a gill man that we would we would like. Yeah, there are a lot of problems I can see here for a humanoid evolving in the water mm-hmm. itself. I mean, bipedality, whatever you want to think about it, like even if you're still attracted to the aquatic ape hypothesis, um, which I, I don't necessarily think you should be, but even if you're attracted to that, it says bipedality was sort of a transitionary feature, right? It was a product of wading in maybe deep water, uh, but not totally deep water, not like water mm-hmm. deeper than you could stand in. Right. And th- so having like a bipedality and legs is not really useful if you are a fully aquatic creature. You would eventually lose them. It'd be much better to have fins, right? I, well, I get the only case I can see to be made here is that a, the creature from the Black Lagoon mm-hmm. must come out of the lagoon to acquire prey and, of course, women. But uh, <laughs> right. But no, it, it is a, it is not an, an obligate um, marine creature. It is a, mm-hmm. a creature that 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 must come out of the water to prey, a creature that is perhaps in the process of becoming a land creature. So, yeah. Almost anything you could think of as a humanoid in shape at all mm-hmm. would 
really need to be semi-aquatic, right? It would need to be at least or mostly aquatic. It would need to have some reason to come out of the water if it was going to have legs like human legs because legs are made for for fighting gravity. Right. Legs are not made for swimming around in a, you know, in a buoyancy situation. That's true. And if you don't have a sea witch to magically turn your fins into feet, then you're probably out of luck. Yeah. So I think if there were an aquatic humanoid, it would more likely be a mermaid with a fish butt than (laughs) a humanoid like the gill man with legs. I think so. I think that makes the most sense. In fact, since they spend most of their time under the water, even if they did come out of the water, what I'd guess is that it'd be a mermaid with a fish butt that would crawl around with its upper arms. Yeah, yeah, we do see that model sometimes. The uh, uh, what is it? The Cabin in the Woods movie. Oh yeah, it had a had a merman creature that comes uh, comes crawling across the floor after its victims. Here's another question, though. How do you think, if there were such a thing as an aquatic humanoid, how would tool use evolve differently at the bottom of the ocean? Oh yeah. That brings us back to uh, some some discussions we've had in the past, particularly as it pertains to the use of fire technology and the yeah. idea of any technology existing without fire. Um, I mean, I keep coming back to I guess it would, a lot of it would have to be sort of biologically based. You know, I mean, you yeah. couldn't, it, would, it would it could not be fire based because you, you cannot really have fire underwater. I mean, you see some things that get kind of classified as rudimentary tool use by by like octopuses, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, uh, I mean, th- maybe this isn't tool use, but the idea of like pulling a rock over the entrance of their dwelling so right. that they can cover it up and protect themselves. That That's interesting behavior. Yeah. I mean, that's the use of, uh, I believe the distinction is that's a nature fact. That is taking something in nature and using it for a uh, purpose. Yeah. Now, and, and then you could say, well, I can imagine an underwater humanoid making an artifact, taking mm-hmm. something and sharpening it into a skewer or shaping it to better protect them. So that that level of technology I could I could see. I mean, one thing, though, is that under the water, both the the resistance density of the water and the buoyancy effects all all would kind of mitigate against some of the benefits you get from, say, stone tools. Our, Mm -hmm. Our most basic tools are very often things that are designed to maximize kinetic energy delivery. Right. Right. So it'd be something that you could throw really hard and hit something and kill it or something that you could hit another thing with and break it in kind of a gravity assisted swinging motion, uh, all of which is a little bit harder to do underwater because you can't swing as fast underwater due to the resistance of the water. I mean, I, I don't know. I wonder if you could have a, a tool using creature evolve under the water. Well, more than, more than likely you'd have to depend upon them originally being an alien species. Right. That crash landed in the water. Um, yeah, this is reminding me a lot of the, the the old nautical maps, which were in, on which you had mermaids and sea monsters, but also all of these different hybrids. Mm-hmm. Sea lion, a sea lion that is not like our sea lion, but an actual lion with a fish uh, 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 portion to its body. Right. And a lot of this was based on the idea that the ocean contains a parallel version of everything that we have on the surface. Yes. And it in. You can extrapolate that to include not only the animals but the resources and say – so you end up falling into the trap of thinking, well, the underwater creatures, they would have their own minerals uh, somehow. They would somehow you know, smelt them and, and craft them into weapons without really thinking about it, that the, 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 the aquatic world is – it's a part of our world but is a very different, a very alien environment compared to the surface. 
Yeah, it's not exactly the mirror world. It's more through a glass darkly. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Uh, in these two episodes, I hope we've uh, we've given everybody a lot of uh, uh, fresh perspective to consider not only the uh, the evolution of, of humans, maybe, but but also just our, our myths and our fictions regarding uh, uh, underwater people and underwater hybrids. And of course, we want to hear back from everybody concerning their favorite uh, underwater humanoids and myth in uh, in literature and cinema. You know, what's your favorite 1989 underwater peril movie? Totally. I know we've got some Deep Star Six partisans out there. Yeah. I think people get attacked. What is it? A killer clam or something in that movie? Uh, it's, I, I haven't rewatched it yet. Um, I'll, but it's some sort of an underwater critter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and also mermaid movies. What's your favorite? Did you like, did you grow up like me watching Splash, uh, on VHS over and over again? I didn't know that about you, Robert. Yeah. It, it's a solid, uh, mermaid romantic comedy. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah, John Candy. Tremendous. Did they ever do a Jetsons meet the Flintstones kind of thing with Leviathan and Splash? No, with Leviathan and Splash. <laughs> oh, you mean did a Leviathan meet Splash movie? Yeah, no, exactly. No, I don't think it exists, or at least not yet. Movie executives, high-powered industry players out there, if you're listening, take mm-hmm. note. Yes. Opportunity knocks. All right. Hey, in the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you'll find all of our podcast episodes. You'll find uh, blog posts and other uh, material as well. Links out to our social media accounts uh, will be found on that page. Also, so we're talking about uh, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We're on all those things. Follow us where you will. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any other, let us know topics you might want us to cover in the future uh, to ramble on and on about 1989 underwater movies you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Thank you.